All right, I want to welcome everyone this morning. And we come now in our worship of King Jesus together. We come now to the preaching of God's Word. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And I want to invite you to join with me as we call on the Lord, as we ask for God's help, as we enter into this time of the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to You today. Your Word tells us, God, that You are light, and in You is no darkness at all. None at all, Lord. You are the Holy, Holy, Holy One. Completely without sin. And Lord, we ask that you would hear us, Lord, as we sing to you today. Lord, we worship you as the one who has power to make our hearts believe. Lord, you have power to make us to trust, to make us to believe. You are the creator of faith. You give it as a free gift. To those who belong to you. Lord, we pray that you would work in sovereign mercy today. That you would make our hearts believe. Lord, we pray now for this time of the preaching of your word. We pray that you, the God who is light, that you would send forth your light today upon us, Lord. That you would cause us to see today. You and your truth, Lord, clearer than we do. Send out your light and your truth, O Lord. And bring us to your holy hill today. You call your word a lamp and a light. It guides our way. It guards our path. You sanctify us in your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would do it today. Please bless The preaching of your word. Make us different today. Make it profitable, Lord. We come to you, the living God of truth and light. Please help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. All across the room this morning, many of us could say that we are here because we love Jesus. We want to know Jesus Christ. We want to submit to Jesus Christ. We want to be taught by Jesus about everything. Of whatever Jesus says about anything, we want to be taught by Him. We want to submit to Jesus as our Master and our Lord. And so as we begin this morning, I want us to consider this question together. And here's the question. Of all that Jesus did, of all of His perfections, The sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ. I want us to consider this question together as we begin this morning. How did Jesus Christ confront false religion? How did Jesus do it? Because as Christians, we know that however Jesus did it, it was without sin. It was perfectly loving. It was perfectly righteous. He did it exactly how it should be done. How did Jesus Christ confront false religion? Now, as Christians, it doesn't surprise us at all that Jesus did it perfectly, that he confronted false religion perfectly. But many of us may be surprised this morning to learn that Jesus's method for confronting false religion was law preaching. I'll say that again. Jesus's method for confronting False religion was a true preaching of the law of God. A true revealing of God's standard. And so again, we find ourselves this morning in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And in Matthew 5 verse 20, this is where we left off last week. Jesus has just laid out a standard for entering into the kingdom of God. Of heaven. And if you'll remember with me, that standard was righteousness. Jesus has required righteousness 
for entry into his kingdom, into the kingdom of heaven. And if you'll remember, Matthew 5, verse 20, not just any old kind of righteousness, not good old boy southern righteousness. Jesus said it must be a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. This is the, the, the righteousness that Jesus demands. Now, that takes us back to our question. How did Jesus confront false religion? Because the scribes and the Pharisees were the practicers of false religion. They were committed to what we could summarize as externalism. Externalism. That's all they cared about. The scribes and the Pharisees lived a life that appeared righteous before men in an external sense. But the reality is, is that these men lived unrighteously before God. They appeared righteous before men, but in fact, they lived unrighteously before God. They were externalists. But the righteousness that Jesus Christ demands of those that would enter his kingdom is not a righteousness that appears to conform to the law of God. But it's a righteousness that must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It's a righteousness that actually does have to conform to the law of God. And so in Matthew 5, Jesus begins to draw a sharp contrast between true and false religion. And specifically, the contrast is between how true and false religion handle the law of God, the righteous, holy standards of God. And so we have these six examples that follow verse 20 in Matthew 5 uh, of examples of how exactly the Pharisees have dumbed down the righteous requirement of the law and how Jesus Christ has come as the, as, as the true exegete of the law of God and he's restoring the original intent of the law, the righteous requirement of the law. So we have six examples of this. It takes us through the end, all the way through the end of Matthew chapter 5, of the righteousness that Jesus demands being greater than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And all six of these examples start with some variation of the same formula. You have heard it said of old. That's the pharisaical perversion of the law of God. But Jesus turns the corner and he says, but I say to you, he's restoring the true intent of the righteous standards of God's law. We have six of these examples. This is where we're going to be for the next several weeks in, in the public preaching of the word of God at Grace Community Church. This morning, we're going to cover the first of those six examples. And so what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus recovering the true meaning of the law of God. Recovering the true meaning of the law of God. There's a phrase in Romans 7, and there's one word that the Apostle Paul uses to describe the law that I think would be so helpful for us to grasp on the front end this morning. And in Romans 7, verse 14, the Apostle Paul tells us this about the law. He says, very simple statement. He says, the law is spiritual. Okay? The law of God is a spiritual law. That's the phrase. That, that's the simplicity of what the word of God says about the law of God. The law is spiritual. In other words, God's law has never been and is not some mere external code of conduct. It's spiritual. It deals with matters on the inside, matters of the heart, matters of the spirit. The law of God is spiritual. And the reason I think it's going to help you if we camp here before we jump into these six examples, the first of the six examples this morning, is that the spiritual nature of the law of God is absolutely crucial for anybody who desires to enter into the kingdom of Jesus. The spirituality of the law of God is absolutely crucial for you to understand. 
for this reason. If the spirituality of the law is not understood, if it's not comprehended, then neither will the righteousness that Jesus demands be understood or comprehended. Because all righteousness is, all it is, is a right relationship to law and lawgiver. So if you don't understand law, then there's, by, by implication, there's no way you can understand the righteousness that Jesus demands to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Sinners who do not grasp the spirituality of the law of God remain unconvicted of their sin and unconcerned about the coming judgment of God. Why? Because those who don't understand that the law is spiritual can deceive themselves into thinking that they have actually met the requirements of the law. This is exactly what happened with the Pharisees. And this is exactly what Jesus is confronting in this passage. And so let's read our text together this morning. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. This is the word of God. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. And first be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard. And you be put in prison. Truly I say to you. You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. Now, if you're taking notes, I want to jot down just the, the, the basic framework of this passage before we dive into the details. What do we have here in verses 21 through 26? In verse 21, we have... Jesus exposing the Pharisees' constricted view of the law of God, the Sixth Commandment. Verse 21 is the Pharisees' narrow view. In verse 22, we have the contrast of Jesus' broad view of the commandment. His broad view of the Sixth Commandment. In verse 22, he gives us three examples of sin that are forbidden by the commandment that go beyond the act of actual murder. And Jesus says all three of these examples of sin are liable to the judgment of God. And then finally in verses 23 through 26, Jesus illustrates two circumstances that call for an urgent reconciliation. And those last four verses show us that According to Jesus' view of the broadness of the law of God, it not only prohibits, in a negative sense, things we should not do, the righteous requirement of the commandment of God also carries positive duties of things we must do in response to God's word. Not only things we should refrain from, but things we must do in obedience to the law of God. So we have the broadness of the commandment in the mouth of Jesus, con contrasted with the narrow, constricted view of the Pharisees. This is the plain sense of this passage. Jesus starts in verse 21 by unpacking the true intent of the Sixth Commandment. And when I say the Sixth Commandment, I mean... Number six of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, or Deuteronomy 5. 
The sixth commandment is this. You shall not murder. This is the commandment that Jesus is dealing with. Now, we've already dealt with this in the past couple of weeks. That this is not Jesus arguing against the commandment. That's a really wrong way of thinking. If God required this as his righteous requirement in the old days. But now in the new days, God requires this as his righteous requirement. That would actually require a change in the fundamental nature of God. And that can never happen because our God does not change. His requirements do not change. He requires righteousness because he is a righteous God. And so what Jesus is dealing with here is the way the sixth commandment has been perverted by the scribes and the Pharisees. And not only is Jesus dealing with the sixth commandment itself, but also the death penalty that the Old Testament attaches to the commandment. And we see this in verse 21. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And that summarizes the penalty many different places, beginning in Genesis 9, that the Old Testament assigns to those who take innocent life. By the blood of man shall their blood be shed. And so that's a helpful reminder to us that the sixth commandment does not forbid all taking of life. It's not thou shalt not kill, it's thou shalt not commit murder. It forbids the, the taking of innocent human life. And we know that because the same Old Testament that gave us the sixth commandment also gave us the civil penalties, the death penalty, to put to death those who break the sixth commandment. And so this is what Jesus is dealing with in this passage. You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. Now, here was the problem. You say, what can be the problem with that? Sounds pretty good to me. Sounds, sounds righteous to me. And if that's all that was being said, true enough. We should not commit murder, and those who commit murder should be put to death by the magistrates, by human governors and governments. True enough if that's all that was being said. But here's the problem. The Pharisees looked at the Sixth Commandment, just like those who practice false religion today, and they looked at that commandment and they walked away from the commandment imagining that they're a pretty good person. That they're a pretty good person. In other words, you ask a Pharisee or those practicers of false religion today, are you a good person, sir? And the response is something like this. Oh, yes, of course. Yes, of course. I mean, nobody's perfect, of course. But it's not like I've ever blank, fill in that blank, killed anybody. It's not like I've ever killed anybody. I mean, I'm a pretty good person because I haven't done that. That mindset... And that answer is an ancient manifestation of this principle called externalism. This pharisaical impulse to externalize the requirements of the law of God. And that's what they did. They looked at the sixth commandment and they wrongly imagined that the only thing forbidden in that commandment, you shall not commit murder is plunging a blade into the body of an innocent human being and taking their life. And because they wrongly imagine that that's the only thing that that commandment forbid, they walked away from that commandment thinking, you know what? I'm a pretty good person. Because after all, I've never killed anybody. Right? They didn't treat the commandment of God or the law of God as spiritual. They treated the commandment of God and the law of God as though it were only this external code of conduct. That if I check that box, I'm just fine. And Jesus Christ, the perfect lawgiver, 
the best teacher that ever was, the righteous reader of Holy Scripture. Jesus Christ shows us in this passage that he is absolutely opposed to this way of thinking. And he draws this massive contrast between verse 21, verse 22 in this passage. And he says in verse 21, that's what they say. Verse 22, Jesus says, but I say to you, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss the simplicity of what Jesus is doing. In verse 21 and 22, Jesus is exposing that the sixth commandment, the law of God, goes deeper than hands that shed innocent blood. It also addresses the heart that is angry with the brother. Jesus is saying that that same commandment goes past bloody hands and it begins to deal with matters of our heart. Anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment of God. And so I want us to learn this morning at the feet of Jesus of whatever he says is right, whatever he says is true. And what he says in this passage is that everyone who is angry with their brother is liable to the judgment of God. That liable means that you're incurring debt that God is going to pay back to you at the final judgment. He compares anger in the heart in this text to murder. Now, not all anger is sin. And be careful how we understand this passage. Not all anger is sin. Why? Because the Bible tells us that there are times when God Himself is angry. God never sins, therefore all anger cannot be sin. Now, God is slow to anger. And His anger is always righteous. It's never unrighteous. Not all anger is sin. Because we're told in the Gospels that Jesus Christ Himself was angry at unbelief. You can see this in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, that Jesus, the holy, perfect Son of God, He experienced anger. He experienced anger. Holy prophets, holy apostles. There are many places in God's Word where they're expressing anger over disobedience to God. But this is righteous anger. Ephesians chapter 4 says it like this, Be angry and do not sin. That's the standard of God's law. In this passage, Jesus is not dealing with righteous anger. But don't miss it. He's saying this, All sinful anger, not only is it wrong, but let's unpack the layers of this. It's a violation of the sixth commandment, You shall not murder. In other words, if you've never taken someone's life, but you've been angry with your brother, you have broken the sixth commandment according to Jesus. And don't stop there. Jesus doesn't stop there. He says that those who commit this sin, those who walk in this sin of sinful anger, they're liable to the judgment of God. They're liable to God's judgment. And not only anger in the heart, verse 22, Jesus also deals with anger on the lips. And he shows us this by giving us two examples of angry speech. And he says this in verse 22, whoever insults his brother. If you look at your footnote in your ESV Bible, you'll see that the, the phrase there is, is literally this. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, R-A-C-A. And make sure this morning you're not relaxing the commandment, right? That you're not saying, I didn't even know there was such a word as raka. And I've definitely never called anybody raka. So I must be fine, you know? This word means empty. It's a term of insult. It's an expression of sinful anger in the heart. Just like the word you fool, in verse 22. Whoever says to you, 
to your brother, you fool. These are expressions of sinful speech that come out of a heart of sinful anger. Maybe you're not familiar with the word raka. Let me show you some modern equivalents of these words. Maybe they sound something like this. You stupid, good-for-nothing moron. You're a numbskull. Dumb as a box of rocks. You can't fix stupid. Worthless, never be anything. Jesus is telling us that the holy law of God, the righteous requirement of the law of God, not only forbids such speech. Jesus tells us in this passage that sinners are going to be held liable for such speech. He says we're going to face the council. And in his last example, he tells us that we're going to, be, we're going to face the judgment of hell itself. These are verbal expressions of sinful anger. And Jesus tells us that God will judge those who speak in this way. It's not real and raw when somebody talks like this. Man, look how real, look how raw they are. It's ungodly. It's not masculine uh, when somebody, it's not bold when somebody talks this way, demeans, dehumanizes. It's forbidden by the law of God. And not only that, Jesus says that God will punish those who speak in this way. These are words that come out of an angry heart. Now, I will say this to make sure no one's tripped up here. There are other places in God's word where that second example is used in a holy way. Where Jesus is forbidding in Matthew 5 and he says, whoever says to his brother, you fool. There are examples in Holy Scripture of that word being on the lips of sinless Jesus Christ. And being used in a sinless way. You say, yeah, but he's using the same word. And the response is, yeah, but not in the same way. He's not using that word like we use that word. The Apostle Paul uses this word in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Again, this is not an excuse to write off the sinful ways that you or, or, or me speak to anybody else. When, when Scripture uses those words, it doesn't use it in the same way that we do. Let's come back full stop in this text. Jesus says those with sinful anger in their heart and sinful anger on their lips are guilty of breaking the sixth commandment and they will be judged by God. In verse 22, Jesus uses three different terms, judgment, counsel, and hell. And all three of these terms describe the same reality. The last day, final judgment of God. And so don't read these as like ascending degrees of asperity. Uh, 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 severity, sorry. <laughs> don't, read it, don't read it like, oh man, the judgment's bad, the council's worse, and hell is the worst of all. And I better not call somebody raka, but I really better not call somebody fool. There are three words that describe the same reality, that these sins will be judged by God. According to Jesus Christ, in God's courtroom on the final day, sins of the heart and sins of the mouth will be judged. And if we're honest, we would admit that Jesus is talking about these sins in a lot different way than we tend to talk about these sins of the heart and sins of the mouth. We are professionals at downplaying our own wickedness. I hope you know that about yourself. It sounds something like this. I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. I'm not angry. I'm just upset. I'm not angry. I'm just hungry. I'm not angry. I'm just hormonal. I'm not angry. I'm just having a bad day. 
You see that? Jesus is dealing with his sin as a matter of life and death, heaven and hell. And yet we so often find ourselves even substituting words for these sins. Oh, I wasn't being serious when I called him that. I was just joking. I was just picking with you. You need to toughen up. But Jesus would have us to remember in Matthew 5 that these sins are as serious as hell. The word translated hell in verse 22 is the Greek word Gehenna. And in Matthew's gospel, we're told several things about Gehenna, about hell from Jesus Christ. In Matthew 10, verse 28, we're told that Gehenna is the place where God punishes not only the body, but also the soul. It's a place of torment, physical, spiritual, emotional torment. In Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus tells us that Gehenna is a place of eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And there are many places in the Gospels where Jesus tells us that Gehenna, where hell, is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is a description of the eternal punishment that God will justly pay to those who have broken His law. And so I want us to learn this. In the Sermon on the Mount, look at what Jesus is doing. Jesus is telling each of us and all of us that all we have to do to bust hell wide open, all you have to do to bust hell wide open, you don't have to kill anybody. You don't have to plunge a blade. You don't have to pull a trigger. You don't have to suck a baby up a, an abortion suction tube. All you have to do to bust hell wide open is be angry with your brother. To have sinful speech on your tongue. Jesus is preaching hell in Matthew 5. And he's doing it to confront false religion. False religion. Remember what he's doing. He's exposing the righteousness that is required to enter into his kingdom. And as Jesus exposes this standard, we would be wise to examine ourselves according to his standard and not the standard that we so often smuggle in, right? We would be wise to use his standards to examine ourselves. Not our standards to determine our own righteousness. And we would be wise to do that this morning. And so this is a moment where we allow the holy light of God's word to expose us. This is that moment where we become vulnerable and exposed before the God of holy scripture. This is like the sick patient coming to the doctor and he says, ah, and the doctor looks down his throat with his light to determine his condition. We would be wise to expose ourselves to the holy, righteous requirement of the law of God. How is your anger? How are you doing with this this morning? How is your anger? Are you keeping this commandment? How are you doing with this commandment? Whoever is angry with his brother is liable to the judgment, Jesus says. How are you doing with that? How are you doing this morning with sinful anger? How are you doing this morning with your speech? With the words that you speak to those who disappoint you. How are you doing with that? How are you doing this morning with your relationship to other people. You see the thing that we all have in common right now. Is we're gathered for public worship. But what's being asked is what happens in your life when you leave this place. What's happening in your heart even now as you look around. Your brothers and sisters in Christ around you. Are you angry? Do you love them? How do you speak to others when you walk out of church? Not just how do you speak publicly when you're in church. How's your relationships? 
with your spouse, with your parents. Not just when your church clothes are on and everything appears to be right before men, but what's the true state of your heart? You see, many of us, if we took a poll as we walked in this morning, and if we took a poll that said, have you ever killed another person? By the grace and the mercy of God, the vast majority of us could respond to that question guiltless. I've never taken the life of an innocent human being. But if we're honest this morning, as we see the righteous requirement of the, of the law exposed upon the lips of Jesus, who among us in this room can see this holy standard, this righteous requirement, about anger in the heart and sinful speech on the lips and respond to Jesus Christ, guiltless. I am guiltless this morning. In relation to these holy standards, Jesus, I am guiltless. Who among us could say that this morning? This is what the law of God does. This is the, the holy function of the holy law of God. Listen to Romans 3.20. It tells us that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what's supposed to happen. We're not supposed to see the commandments and walk away feeling like, you know what, I'm a pretty good person. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. We, we are exposed to the righteous standards of God. And this has been happening in the past five, ten minutes already in this room. We're being reminded that we're sinners. We've fallen short of the standard. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is how this works. This is how the law of God works. Once those pharisaical shackles are taken off of the commandment of God, it starts gripping our conscience and it starts saying, guilty, guilty, guilty. And it exposes us as lawbreakers. Exposes us as lawbreakers. This is Jesus' standard. That whoever is angry with his brother is under the judgment of God. The Apostle John lays down the same standard in his letter. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15 says this, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so this is the standard of the kingdom of Jesus. This is what Jesus means when he says your righteousness has got to be better than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus' standard is sinful anger in the heart makes you guilty murderer. Whoever is angry with his brother, has committed murder. Now this is the plain sense of this passage. The broadness of the commandment versus the narrowness of the commandment in the view of the Pharisees. Jesus is restoring the true intent of the law of God and it leaves every single one of us in this room guilty before the righteous standards of holy, holy, holy God. And once we recognize this righteous requirement, I believe that Jesus Christ would have us to respond in four ways. And the rest of our time this morning is going to be covering these four responses as we're exposed to the righteous requirement of God's holy law. So you could jot these down. These are alliterated for simplicity. This is how Jesus would have us to respond. Number one, recognize our guilt. That's what we should do this morning. As we're exposed to the righteous standard, we should recognize our guilt. Number two, we should run to Jesus Christ. We should recognize our guilt, but not stop there. We should flee, fly, trust in, rest in Jesus Christ. We need mercy. And we should run to Jesus Christ. Number three, we should repent of our sin. These things that Jesus 
has exposed in us, even by mentioning internal anger and sinful speech. Those who love Christ, those who belong to Christ this morning, we ought to repent of such things. We ought to turn away from sins that dishonor our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to come under His authority this morning as Lord and Master and King and repent of our sins. And then finally, number four, we should reconcile quickly with others. We should recognize our guilt, run to Christ, repent of sin, and reconcile quickly with others. Let's move through these together. Number one, we should recognize that we are guilty before the law of God. And we said this already, and not only in this room this morning, but even if you consider lost humanity as a whole, there are very small percentage, even of lost humanity as a whole, of human beings that have actually, literally, physically murdered another human being. So the percentage, I don't know what that is, but the percentage of people that have actually broken the commandment in that literal sense is relatively small by the grace of God, by the restraining grace of God. Very few proportionally commit the sin of murder. Very few proportionately take innocent human life. And so most of us, by definition, are not going to be guilty of pulling the trigger or stabbing somebody. But what we've seen is that every one of us stand guilty before the righteous requirement of God's holy law. And so we ought to recognize our guilt. That a right understanding of the law of God, the spirituality of the law of God, it doesn't allow any of us to strut around as though we were morally superior to anyone else. God's law reminds us that we are lawbreakers. God is the lawgiver. Jesus is the law keeper. We all, without exception, are lawbreakers. The law of God indicts every single one of us as heart murderers this morning. And some of us, if not all of us, have also murdered with our tongues. We murder in our hearts, and we also murder with our tongues. James chapter 2, verse 10 says it this way. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point becomes guilty of all of it. So let's just pretend for a moment, and I know this is hard, but let's just pretend for a moment that this was your only sin. That heart murder was your only sin. I said pretend, right? Let's pretend that that was your only sin. The Bible says that even if you broke just one part of God's law, you're indicted for the whole thing. We're toast. We're lawbreakers. And we ought to recognize our guilt before God. We have broken the law. We are liable for our sin. And we are in desperate need of mercy from God. We need mercy from the Lord. And this takes us to number two. When we recognize our guilt, and you have to learn this, and, and just it has to saturate your soul, that your first move, when you realize that you are guilty and unclean before God, it cannot be, never can be, never, ever, ever, I'm going to clean myself up. You know what? I've done all this wrong. Anger, hatred, sinful speech. But you know what? I'm about to clean it all up. I'm going to do right this time. I'm not going to go back in that direction. Your first move has always has to be to run to Jesus Christ. Not to fix yourself up. Pretty yourself up. You need forgiveness. Even if you could turn the corner yourself. Your sinful record has to be dealt with. You need mercy. You need a Savior. You need Jesus Christ. You need forgiveness for your sins of anger. For the, the murder that you have committed in your heart. Don't you see? These sins, Jesus says, they're not going to be swept under the rug and forgotten about by God. They're going to be liable for You're going to be liable for them. 
They're going to reappear at the final judgment. And we're going to be paid with hell for breaking God's law. We need mercy. We need to be forgiven by the lawgiver. And where else can we go? If we are lawbreakers and we are liable for our sins and we need mercy, where else are we going to go besides Jesus Christ? He's the only way to the Father. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Only Jesus. He's the only place where we can go. He's the only place where we can find mercy. Therefore, we must run to Jesus Christ. We must put our trust in Jesus Christ. He's the only one who came for us. He's the only one who died for our sins. He's the only one who rose victoriously from the dead. And we need Him. We need Jesus Christ. And so we must run to Him. And the Bible promises that all who run to Christ, put their trust in Jesus, they're going to find mercy. They're going to find a merciful God who delights to forgive sinners. This is how the Apostle Paul says it in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. He says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. Christ is the end of it. You come to Christ, you put your trust in Christ, you are granted, given, and gifted the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is so important. Eternally important that you learn that this step comes first. Running to Christ before reforming yourself. You could say it this way in theological categories. You could say, before we can ever live out the practical righteousness of sanctification, we need the imputed righteousness of justification. Or you could say it in a dumbed down simple way, you cannot live the Christian life until you are a Christian. You need to be justified before you will ever be sanctified. And so learn this well. Until you are declared righteous through Christ alone, by faith alone. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says that all your righteous deeds are a polluted garment. You need Jesus you need the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And yet, in this passage, Jesus would call us to repentance. Not only to receive forgiveness of our sins, but those who belong to Christ, the disciples of Jesus, the citizens of His kingdom, should repent of their sins of anger. As followers of Jesus, we should hate these sins. That Hebrews tells us these are sins that cling so closely to us. We should hate these sins. Because sinful anger tells lies about Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is slow to anger. Jesus is tender-hearted. Jesus is a kind Savior. Jesus delights in forgiveness. Jesus is forbearing and patient. Jesus is not angry. We should hate these sins because they distort the reputation of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Master, the one whom we represent in this world. We must hate sinful anger in our heart like we hate murder. We must hate them the same because Jesus says they are the same. This is the seed of murder. Is this angry, sinful heart. We should hate sinful anger like we hate murder because it is like murder. And turning the corner, we should turn away from sinful anger as though sinful anger were trying to drag us to Gehenna because it is. That's exactly what it's doing in this passage, we should hate it like murder. A couple of years ago, there was a story of a young boy, I believe he was seven years old, named Kingston Frazier. You remember this. Some of you know where you were when you heard this news. This young boy was, was basically kidnapped from the Kroger on 55, drove up the interstate, and he was murdered, cold-blooded. 
A seven-year-old child was shot in the chest. His life was taken. And I know that every person who's aware of that story, I know that somewhere in there is you hate it. You hate that stuff. You, 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 it repulses you. You hate it because it's unrighteous. It's offensive to you because you know it offends God. And here's the battle that we're in. Jesus is calling us to do heart work that we would hate our sinful anger like we hate hearing people pull the trigger and killing people in the news almost on a weekly basis. We have to hate these sins. Jesus loved righteousness, but Jesus hated wickedness. And we got to hate this stuff. We got to hate this anger in our hearts. And we got to turn from it as though it were dragging us to hell itself. Jesus calls us to heart work as we realize the spirituality of the law. And just a moment ago, as we begin to speak about anger in the heart and sinful speech, I have no doubt, I have no doubt this morning that many in this room were convicted of sins that you committed. Maybe very recently you committed these sins. And maybe you committed these sins about those who are very close to you. I know because it's the same thing that happened to me as I studied this passage. It's the holy law of God. It's the righteous requirement of the kingdom of heaven. And so I want to speak directly to our personal sins this morning. Not just theoretical But all the occasions and all the times where we're breaking this stuff, we're breaking God's law. And I want to share something with you this morning that I'm convinced you need to hear it. And I'm convinced it's going to help you. I know I need to hear it. And it's this. You need to stop. I want to let the simplicity of that just sink in this morning. All that sinful anger in your heart and the sinful ways that you speak to other people as a disciple of Jesus, you need to stop it. You need to stop. You need to turn away from those sins. You need to renounce them and turn away from them. God calls you to stop. He calls us to stop giving away to sinful anger. Stop being angry. Hear it this morning. From the authority of God's Word, stop living in anger. God calls you to patience. God calls you to tenderness. Listen to how it's said in Ephesians 4, verse 31. The Word of God says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning. If this has been an issue for you in recent weeks, I want to exhort you this morning. I want to press this morning. Stop nursing sinful anger in your heart and start killing it. God's Word does not tell us to play with it. It says put it away. Put it away from us. And even that's not enough to put it to death. The Bible calls us to grow in the opposite direction. Not just negative, put it to the side. But to grow positively in the opposite direction. In Christ's likeness. Be kind. Be tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. This is what Jesus calls us to. This is the righteous standards of the kingdom of God. Now, when we say that, just stop it. Just turn away from that sin. Just stop it. I want you to understand that that's a a reality that is only available to us in the gospel. That part of the good news of the gospel is we can hear, stop it. And by the power of Jesus Christ living in us, you know what? We can stop it. This is part of the good news of Jesus. Not only forgiveness of sin, 
but the liberation from sin's dominion. I'll say it this way. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23. He asked this question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Do you know that's what it means to be lost? What it means to be lost is that you're no more able to reform yourself than an Ethiopian is able to change his skin or a leopard is able to change his spots. That's what it means to be lost. That's why the announcement of the Gospels is you must be born again or you cannot, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But that's not all the Bible says, right? We come to Romans chapter 6, verse 11, and we, and we find these words. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be saved. And this is how Christ has called us to live, to repent of such sins, to turn away from such sins, to begin to put on the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. And lastly, Jesus would have us, he would call us this morning to reconciliation from this passage. In these last four verses, verses 23 through 26, Jesus gives us two very practical examples of circumstances that require urgent reconciliation. By that I mean Jesus says, you've got to do something about this now. The first example in verse 23 and 24 involves a brother. And the second example in verses 25 and 26 involves an accusing enemy. One's a brother, one's an accusing enemy. Now jot this down or note it well. Both of these examples in verse 23 through 26 presuppose that you have legitimately wronged your brother. Okay? That you have legitimately wronged your brother. This passage is not calling us. We're going to see uh, the kind of effort that Jesus calls us to in just a moment. This passage is not calling us, if somebody's offended, that you wore green, blue jeans instead of, you know, uh, uh, blue, blue jeans. That you make an 80 mile journey to set things right. Okay, These are legitimate offenses. They presuppose that you have really wronged another person. In the first example, you have legitimately wronged a brother. In the second example, you have legitimately wronged someone, an accuser, who is suing you for a legitimate debt. You owe him something, you won't pay it, so he's taking you to court. When you wrong a brother, or in this second scenario, Jesus is exhorting us with these two stories to make it right, to make it right urgently. There's a phrase that you've heard sometime along the way, nip it in the bud, stop it now, act now, make it right urgently. That's the plain sense of these two examples. The first example... Jesus is exhorting us, don't try to cover up your offenses with public acts of worship. So the person brings a gift to the altar, and they're reminded that their brother has something against them, that they sinned against their brother. Jesus says, don't ignore that. You've got to address that right now. And the exhortation to us is not to cover up our sins with public worship. Attending public worship and ignoring offenses is not heart obedience. It is not the righteousness that Jesus is calling us to. That would be the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Ignore all the sins I've committed and bring my offering to God. Externalism. External religion. The second example in verses 25 and 26, Jesus is exhorting us, don't be forced to make it right by a human court. Don't be forced to do what is right. Don't be forced to reconcile by pagans who don't even know God. 
Being forced to do right by the magistrates is not heart obedience. It's externalism. It's not the righteousness that Jesus calls his disciples to. And so he exhorts us in these two examples to reconcile quickly. In fact, there was a reference earlier in chapter 5 where Jesus calls his disciples. You remember that? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God. Jesus is exhorting us to make haste to right the wrongs that we have done to others. Make haste to right those wrongs. And so the plain sense of what we have here is those who nurse a heart of anger towards another, a heart of sinful anger, the plain sense of this passage tells us that they are in a state of rebellion to Jesus Christ. And that's true whether they find themselves angry at their parents, angry at their spouse, angry at their children, angry at their boss, angry as they're driving down the road and somebody cuts them off. Those who have sinful anger in their hearts and they will not address it are in rebellion to the teaching of Jesus Christ in this passage. And not only that, verses 23 through 26, those who refuse to live at peace with others commit great sin against the law of God. It is no light thing to walk away from unresolved conflict in the local church. It is direct disobedience to Jesus Christ. The biblical standard that Jesus is calling us to is to strive for peace. Do all you can to live at peace with one another. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 says it this way. Strive for peace with everyone. That's what we ought to be doing. Not having conflict and I'll deal with it when it gets around. Strive for peace with everyone, God's Word says. And we get a sense in this passage of the links that Jesus calls us to go to make right the wrongs that we have done to others. And I want to highlight that with his first example in verses 23 and 24. We have an example in verses 23 and 24 of a man who comes to offer his gift at the altar. Now that word altar and the gift being offered is a description of the Jerusalem temple. And so I want us to catch a glimpse of the context that these words are spoken in. It'll help us to understand the severity, the urgency that Jesus calls us to. Jesus envisions here a Galilean Jew who travels to the, the, the Jerusalem temple to offer a sacrifice to Yahweh, the one true God. That's about an 80-mile journey. No Teslas, no Kias, no Toyotas, no Hondas, no paved roads um, by foot. 80-mile journey from Galilee to Jerusalem with an animal, most likely, to make a sacrifice on the altar to God. Jesus says, if that person who has made this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem remembers in that moment where he's about to, remember, where he's about to render public worship to God, if he remembers in that moment that his brother has something against him, that means that he remembers that he's wronged his brother and it hasn't been made right. Jesus says this in this passage. Leave, verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Now remember the geography here. Not go down the street. Not jump three rows over to somebody that you're not reconciled with in this room. He says go. Where? Back to where that person is. Back to where you came from. Most likely this is a reference to stop sacrificing in the temple. Go back to Galilee. 80 mile journey. Be reconciled to your brother. Then turn back around. 80 mile journey back to the Jerusalem temple. Then render public worship to God. I hope you get a sense in this example of the kind of pains and the kind of urgency that Jesus is calling us to make right the wrongs 
that we have done. Brothers and sisters, do all you can to live at peace with those whom you have offended. If there's unresolved conflict in this local church, I want this to be a call, a summons from the Word of God. Let's deal with this stuff. Let's obey Jesus Christ. Let's obey the Lord. Let's make haste to right the wrongs that we have done to others. And let's receive Jesus' teaching in this passage, not, not to neglect the inside, not to neglect our hearts as we seek to bring glory and honor of Jesus to Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. We'll close with this. This is a prayer for this local church. May the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And that's what we want to ask the Lord to do even now. Let's pray. Lord, we call on your name this morning. God, we thank you for your word that you have revealed instead of concealed your righteous requirements, Lord. And we love you, Lord Jesus. There's no one else who came for us. You purchased us with your own blood. And we want to submit to your teaching, Lord. We want to obey you. We want to learn from you. We want to sit at your feet. And so we ask this morning that you would deliver us from sinful anger. Deliver us from the sins that cling so closely to us, Lord. You are the sanctifier. You are the Holy One. And we ask that you would heal us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.